and we're extremely happy <laughs> to see that Sviatan Todorov is with us after probably having had to contend with um, the quirks of the Eurostar. <laughs> um, um, it is very generous of him um, to join us um, in this conversation, and it is really a great and singular pleasure and honor to introduce him, um, although he needs no introduction. Uh, but uh, Sviatan Todorov was born in Bulgaria, um, emigrated to France, um, he is a historian, an essayist, uh, director of uh, honorary director of research at CNRS in Paris. Um, he is the author of numerous <coughs> books on diverse subjects, um, the conquest of America on human diversity, facing the extreme, hope and memory, unity of civilization, plurality of cultures, and most recently in defense of the Enlightenment. What I most greatly value about Svetan Todorov's writing and thought um, is the combination of lucidity and empathy of um, incisively defined arguments and greatness. <coughs> um, Stanley Hoffman, a Harvard historian, called Svetan Todorov the most important thinker of our time. And indeed, he is a great thinker and a great humanist tradition um, who, I think, helps us to grapple with our the issues of our time, the issues and problems of our time, in rich and deep and humane ways. So please welcome Svetan Todorov. Oh, thank you. Well, I think we will let you take the podium for yes. You think I'm yes. big enough to occupy the whole space? Yes, too Sorry about being late, but I realized that this gave you the occasion of presenting more fully the activities of the British Council. Thank you. So it, it wasn't... Uh, it was traffic jams more than uh, Eurostar that made me come late, since I finally had to switch to a car, you know, to arrive. I apologize for that. And uh, my presentation today is, um, will sound maybe a little bit abstract, but the papers I read were all going into the detail of concrete experiences. And so I thought that this very general introduction was one way of framing what was going to follow. At least that's what I thought. And uh, the title I <coughs> suggested is Barbarism, Civilization, Cultures, an evocation of these concepts in front of you. I would like to approach the subject by specifying at the start the meaning of these words that I will be using. To start with, the couple formed by the words barbarism and civilization. It is well known that the first of these words, barbarism, has a long past in European history, 
and that it has been used in basically two different ways. One of these meanings is purely relative and is adopted both by some Christian authors who have commented on the subject and by some important profane authors such as Montaigne in France. The barbarian in this case is simply the person who is different from us or who doesn't speak our language or speaks it badly. In one word, the barbarian is the foreigner, the alien. I would, however, prefer to keep the other meaning of the word, which is moral and absolute. This second concept of barbarity is equally legitimate, at least coherent, and we must be able to draw on it to designate at all times and in all places the acts and attitudes of those who, to a greater or lesser degree, reject outside of humanity those who are perceived as different, or judge them to be radically different from ourselves, from themselves, or inflict shocking treatment on them. Treating others as inhuman, as monsters, as savages, is one of the forms of this barbarity. A different form is an institutional discrimination towards others because they don't belong to my linguistic community or my social group or my psychological type. If we have one term with an absolute content, barbarian, the same will be true of its opposite. A civilized person is one who is able at all times and all places again to recognize the humanity of others fully. So two stages have to be crossed before anyone can become more civilized. In the first stage, you discover that others live in a way different from you. In the second, you agree to see them as bearers of the same <coughs> humanity as yourself. The moral demand comes with an intellectual dimension. Getting those with whom you live to understand a foreign identity, whether individual or collective, is an act of civilization. Since in this way, you're enlarging the circle of humanity. In this sense, but in this sense only, scholars, philosophers, artists contribute to driving back barbarity. In actual fact, no individual, let alone any people, can be entirely civilized. They can merely be more or less civilized, and the same goes for barbarian. Civilization is a horizon which we can approach, Barbarity is a background from which we seek to move away. Neither condition can be entirely identified with particular beings. It is acts and attitudes which are barbarian or civilized, not individuals or peoples. People have often pointed out with relish that there is a paradox revealed in the 20th century. Barbarity, they exclaim, sprung from the very heart of European civilization. 
But there isn't really anything all that paradoxical here. Once it is admitted that civilization cannot be reduced to the production and enjoyment of works of art, and that the relationship between these two notions, art, production, and, and civilization itself, is indeed far from direct. Mankind's existential, ethical, and aesthetic achievements do not depend mechanically on each other. And yet, they're all perfectly real. We need to think of them in their plurality and not deduce them from each other, not transform one into a means for attaining the other, nor indeed consider them as opposites that we need to choose between in an either-or way dictated by an exclusivist logic. A first warning, but a powerful one, against the illusions entertained by certain supporters of the promotion of culture is found in the most lucid French-speaking representative of the Enlightenment, that is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. In his first work, The Discourse on the Sciences and the Arts, he was already breaking away from the philosophes and encyclopedists who were his friends because he wanted to abandon their belief that the spread of works of art and technological advances will make mankind better. Far from contributing to the progress of moral life and an increased uh, <coughs> benevolence towards others, he declared, the growth in sciences and arts may become detrimental to moral progress. <coughs> the vocation of human beings is to live with others, to live well with others. And for that, there is no need to accumulate a great pile of knowledge, nor to be what is called a cultivated person. Civilization is the opposite of barbarism. However, the meaning of the first word, civilization, changes considerably if we put it into the plural. Civilizations no longer correspond to an atemporal, moral, and intellectual category, but to historical formations that appear and disappear, characterized by the presence of several characteristic traits linked both to material life and to the life of the mind. It is in this sense that we speak of Chinese or Indian or Persian or British or French civilization. These two senses of civilization, illustrated by the singular and the plural, are independent of each other. To avoid any ambiguity, I will use the word civilization here only in the singular, and I'll designate the sense of its plural by one of its quasi-synonyms, which in any case bears the same double meaning, which is the word cultures. For over two centuries now, however, culture has assumed a broader meaning than its usual association with the arts. Its knowledges have been largely responsible for this evolution. They realized that societies studied by them, often lacking writing and monuments and works of art, 
nonetheless possessed practices and artifacts that played an analogous role within them. They called those, in turn, <coughs> cultures. This ethnological meaning has now gained ascendancy. Therefore, ethnology is also called <coughs> cultural anthropology. If the word is taken in this broad sense as descriptive and no longer evaluative of value judgment, every, each and every human group has a culture. This is the name given to the set of characteristics of its social life, to collective modes of living and thinking, to the forms and styles of organization of time and space, which include language, religion, family structures, ways of building houses, tools, ways of eating and dressing. Culture is thus necessarily particular, not universal. In addition, the members of the group, and we should bear in mind that there may be just a few dozens of them, or several millions, interiorize these characteristics in the form of mental representations. So culture exists on these two closely related levels, that of social practices and that of the image left by these practices in the minds of the members of the community. It is not their content that determines the identity of cultures, but their diffusion, <coughs> the way they spread out Culture is necessarily collective. It thus presupposes communication, of which it is one of the results. Being a representation, culture also provides us with an interpretation of the world, a miniature map, a model, so to speak, which enables us to find our way around in the world. Possessing a culture means having at one's disposal a pre-organization of lived experiences. Culture rests simultaneously on a common memory. We learn the same language, the same history, the same traditions, and on common rules of life. We speak in such a way as to make ourselves understood. We take into account the codes at work in our society. It is, at the same time, turned towards the past and towards the present. Brief historical reminder, it is no accident that these two concepts of civilization and cultures, whatever the words used to designate them, and sometimes they are used in the opposite way, culture being the the singular and civilization, the plural, but that is relevant here, entered European thought at the same time, the second half of the 18th century, in the wake of the Enlightenment. Several authors at that time were to contrast barbarism with civilization and conceive the history of humanity as a one-way process leading from one to the other. At the same time, a growing interest occurred for cultures. This was grafted onto a long, old tradition, which in France went back to Montaigne with his insistence on the power of custom. Pascal 
in the 17th century said of custom that it was a second nature. He thus, he thus prefigured the formulations of later anthropologists. The travels of Europeans east, south, and west became increasingly frequent in the 17th and 18th centuries, and their protagonists will, would bring back detailed and sometimes even admiring descriptions of the customs and manners observed in the countries they visited, even though these customs were far removed from collective European practices. At the same period, there was a new interest in history, and thus for ancient social forms, no longer perceived as arising from a now inaccessible golden age, nor as a mere imperfect preparation for the present. Henceforth, it was deemed that every period had its own ideal and its own coherence. For a long time, Enlightenment thought served as a source of inspiration for a reformist liberal current which fought against conservatism in the name of universality and equal respect for all. As you may know, things have changed these days, and the conservative defenders of a higher Western culture have arrogated this idea to themselves, beginning, believing themselves to be engaged in a struggle against relativism that, they say, emerged from the romantic reaction at the start of the 19th century. They cannot do so, obviously, unless, unless they amputate the real tradition of the Enlightenment, which was able to combine the universality of values with the plurality of cultures. This doctrine should be confused neither with dogmatism my culture impose, it must impose itself on everyone, nor with nihilism, all cultures are pretty much the same, or have the same value. Placing the Enlightenment at the service of a denigration of others, which gives one the right to subject or destroy them, represents a wholesale kidnapping of the whole Enlightenment project. Now, let me try to describe from the inside what I call culture. Human beings, indeed, are born not only within nature, but also, always, and necessarily within a culture. Now, its distinctive features, the first one of them, is that culture, cultural identity, is imposed on us during childhood rather than being chosen. On coming into the world, the human child is plunged into the culture of the group which precedes it. The most salient, but also probably the most determining fact, is that we are necessarily born within one language, the language spoken by our parents or the people who look after us. Now, language is not a neutral instrument. It is impregnated with thoughts, actions, and judgments that are handed down to us. It divides reality up 
in a particular way and imperceptibly transmits to us a vision of the world. In parentheses, the Uzbek contribution to our conference has much to say on this influence of language on uh, our thinking. The child cannot avoid absorbing it, and the, this way of conceiving it is transmitted from generation to generation. A second feature of the cultural affiliation of each individual is immediately obvious also. We possess not one, but several cultural identities, which may either overlap or <coughs> present themselves as intersecting sets. For example, a French person will always come from a particular region, let's say Burgundy. But then, from another angle, this person shares several characteristics with all Europeans. So she is participating simultaneously in Burgundian, French, and European cultures. On the other hand, within one single geographical <coughs> entity, there are many different cultural stratifications. There is the culture of teenagers and the culture of retired people, the culture of doctors and the culture of street sweepers, the culture of women and that of men, of rich and poor. A particular individual may recognize herself as belonging simultaneously to <coughs> Mediterranean, Christian, and European culture. Now, at this point, it's essential. These different cultural identities do not coincide with one another and do not form clearly separated territories in which these different ingredients would be superimposed without reminder. Every individual is multicultural. Cultures are not monolithic islands, but crisscrossed alluvial plains. Individual identity stems from the encounter of multiple collective identities within one and the same person. Each of our various affiliations contributes to the formation of the unique creature that we are. Human beings are not all similar, nor entirely different from each other. They are all plural within themselves and share their constitutive traits with varied groups, combining them in an individual way. The cohabitation of different types of belonging within each one of us doesn't in general cause any problem. And this ought in turn to arouse admiration like a juggler, we keep all the balls of our identity in the air at once with the greatest of ease. We should overcome the habit that links primarily culture to a specific territory. Another <coughs> characteristic of culture no less easy to identify is the fact that cultures are in perpetual transformation. All cultures change, even if it is certain that so-called traditional cultures do so less willingly and less quickly than those that are called modern. 
there are several different reasons for these changes. Since each culture includes others within itself of smaller size or intersects with them, these different ingredients form an unstable equilibrium. For example, granting women the right to vote in France in 1944 enabled women to participate actively in the country's public life. As a result, French cultural identity was, of course, deeply transformed. We also need to take into account the pressures brought to bear by the evolution of other series that are constitutive of social order, the economic, the political, even the physical. The most eloquent image of the variability of cultures I can think of is that of the mythical ship of the Argonauts, the Argo. Each plank, each rope, each nail had to be replaced. So since the voyage took so long, the ship that returned to port years later was materially completely different from the one which set off. And yet, it was the same ship Argo. Only the dead cultures don't change anymore. If we keep these last characteristics of culture in mind, its plurality and its variability, we see how disconcerting are some of the metaphors commonly used to evoke it. We say of a human being, for instance, that he or she is uprooted, and we pity him for it. But it is not legitimate to equate human beings with plants, since a human is never the product of just one culture, and in any case, the animal world is distinguished from the vegetable world precisely by its mobility. Cultures have no essence or soul, in spite of the fine works that have been written about these things. Or else people talk of the survival of a culture, this time humanizing the representations instead of dehumanizing man. By this they mean its conservation in identical form. Now, a culture that has stopped changing is by definition a dead culture. The expression dead language is much more judicious. Latin died on the day, not that it couldn't be used anymore, it can still be used, but on the day it could no longer change. Nothing is more normal, more common, than the disappearance of a previous stage of culture and its replacement by a new state. However, we would be naive to just state this characteristic of cultures and not to notice that the members of each group find this obvious fact difficult to accept. I think the difference between individual and collective identity is illuminating here. Even if we dream of discovering one day within us a deep and authentic self, as if it awaited us 
patiently lurking somewhere in the depths of our being, we are conscious of the changes, wished for or not, that our being undergoes. They are perceived as normal. Everyone remembers the decisive events from her past, and we can also take decisions that send our identities off in a new direction when we change jobs or partners or countries, as some of us have done. A person is nothing other than the result of the innumerable interactions that mark out the stages of a life. Now, collective identity works in a completely different way. It is already fully formed by the time the young child discovers it, and it becomes the invisible foundation on which her identity is built. Even if, seen from the outside, every culture is mixed and changing, for the members of the community that it characterizes, it is a stable and distinct entity, the foundation of their personal identity. For this reason, all change that affects culture is experienced as an attack on my integrity. <coughs> One need merely compare the facility with which I agree, if only I am capable of it, to speak a new language while on a visit to a foreign country, such as Belgium. An individual event, of course, and the disagreeable feeling I have when, in the street where I have always lived, only incomprehensible words and accents can be heard now. A collective event. <coughs> what we have found in the original culture is no longer shocking, since this has helped actually to shape the person. On the other hand, what changes by force of circumstances over which the individual has no power is perceived as a kind of degradation, for it makes our very sense of being feel fragile. The contemporary period during which collective identities are called on to transform themselves more and more quickly <coughs> is thus also the period in which groups are adopting an increasingly defensive attitude and fiercely demanding their original identities, imagined, but still for them original. Cultural identity has to be distinguished, on the other hand, both from civic status and from our attachment to moral and political values. No one can change his or her childhood whereas it is perfectly possible to change our civil loyalties without any damage. The state is not a culture like others. It is an administrative and political entity with well-established frontiers, and it obviously includes individuals who are bearers of several different cultures, since in it we find men and women, young people and old, of every profession and every condition from various regions, indeed countries, and speaking different languages, practicing different religions, and respecting different customs. 
This doesn't mean that belonging to one specific state is insignificant. It is within the nation that the great social solidarities find a place. It is the taxes paid by all citizens that make medical care available to those who cannot afford it. It is the work of the active citizens which enables retired senior citizens to pick up their pensions. It is their contributions, too, which help to supply a fund for the unemployed. It is thanks to national solidarity that all children in the country benefit from a free education. Now, health, work, and education all form an essential part of a free existence. On the other hand, the moral and political principles to which we are attached are both fragile and irreplaceable. It is in the name of these principles that can be shared by all peoples, but which are proper to just a few, and independent of our particular cultures as well of the, of the states whose citizens we are, that, to take a few current examples, we are ready today to defend intransigently the freedom of women to organize their personal lives the way they see fit, or secularism understood as the separation of the theological and the political, which confines the exercise of faith in the personal sphere alone, the corollary of which is the freedom to criticize religions, or else the banning of physical violence, whether it be domestic or practiced illegally in the name of raison d'etat, such as torture. These principles happen to be integrated into the constitution or the laws or the institutions of several countries, but they don't belong to them intrinsically. The dissociation between this set of values and the national framework is all the more obvious these days in Europe, since the majority of the population of the European Union demonstrate that they are attached to them, whereas the states themselves preserve their borders and their sovereignty. We can go even further. Many of these ideals today feature in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and inspire the legislative systems of other cultural or national traditions. Conversely, we must remember that the European heritage contains many elements other than the defense of human rights. Now, if certain persons living in a European country these days refuse the state of law, oppress women, or systematically resort to physical violence, they are to be condemned not because such types of behavior are foreign to our cultural identity or to European <coughs> identity. Alas, they are not. <coughs> but because they transgress the laws in force, which in turn are inspired by a code of moral and political values. It is for every individual 
to look after his or her own affective choices. Neither government nor parliament have any reason to meddle with them. It is in this respect that our democracies are liberal. The state does not entirely control civil society, and within certain limits, each individual remains free. That's why national identity is independent of the laws and is made and unmade on a daily basis by the action of millions of individuals living on this or that country. How can we distinguish between what is acceptable insofar as it forms part of a tradition and what is not acceptable insofar as it contradicts the constitutive values of democracy? The answer is in principle not so difficult, however its application to particular cases poses many problems. The answer in principle is, in a democracy, law is higher than custom. This precedence does not affect Western or European or French or British culture, but the basis of the values to which the country is faithful. The values of a society find their expression in the Constitution, the laws, or indeed the very structure of the state. If custom transgresses them, it must be abandoned. The Universal Declaration of UNESCO, adopted in 2001 and confirmed by the United Nations in 2002, says in its Article 4, none may invoke cultural diversity in order to attack the human rights guaranteed by international law, nor to limit their effectiveness. effectiveness. And we should add, nor to attack all the laws, all the rights guaranteed by the laws of a democratic country. If the law is not broken, this means that the custom in question can be tolerated. It can also be criticized publicly, but it cannot be forbidden. For example, marriages in which the choice of the partner is imposed by the family become a crime only if they are imposed by force. If they are accompanied by the consent of the bride, they may be regrettable, but they cannot be treated as being against the law. The two participants in this interaction would do well to draw a clear line between cultural identity and political choices, between forms of spirituality and civic values. On one hand, cultural identity, forms of spirituality, and on the other, belonging to a state adhering to certain civic values. It is thanks to a distinction of this kind that non-Western countries in the world have adopted the principles of democratic government without having to renounce their traditions and customs. The separation between laws and values on the one side, culture and spirituality on the other, can become in 
European countries as well. The point of departure for a politics adapted to contemporary society. Nonetheless, in order to submit to the law, we need first to know it. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, goes the saying, which is true, but in practice there are many adults who are ignorant of the law and who transgress it unknowingly, something that is especially easy if they are acting in agreement with an ancestral custom. In the contemporary world, it is for the state to ensure that all the inhabitants of a country, whatever their origin, have some idea of the great principles on which the laws rest. Basic education should be free and compulsory for all, as it is for native-born children. And this, in turn, requires a basic knowledge of the country's language. Pondering how best to respond the, to these demands and what might be asked in exchange could well be the task of a modern liberal state, necessarily a multicultural one. Are we threatened today by a clash of civilizations? I'm personally unable to see in what sense <coughs> cultural differences are the source of contemporary international conflicts. Thus, I don't believe that the remedy for these tensions will come from a debate on cultures, on culture. Western <coughs> countries can help ease these tensions in other ways. Present interactions do not occur in a vacuum, and the centuries of history that have preceded them cannot be erased, centuries in which the Western countries have dominated the rest of the world. So we can see what demands can be addressed to the political and intellectual elites of Western countries if they desire sincerely to take part. A first requirement here would be that they cease to consider themselves as the incarnation of the law of virtue and universality, of which their technological superiority would seem to be the proof. So they should stop immediately setting themselves above the laws and judgments of others. The right to military intervention that certain Western powers have arrogated to themselves is not only without any basis other than force, it risks suggesting that the ideals defended by these same Westerners, such as liberty, equality, secularism, human rights, are merely a convenient camouflage for their will to power and thus are not worth of any respect. Freedom cannot be promoted by constraint, nor equality by subjection. If our political leaders wish these ideals to remain active, they must begin by withdrawing their troops from the countries in which they are intervening at present Iraq and Afghanistan, 
close down illegal prisons and torture camps in these countries and help set up a valuable, a viable Palestinian state. Every society is multicultural. The fact remains that nowadays the contacts between populations of different origins, especially in the cities, migrations and travels, and the international exchange of information are all the more intense than all more intense than ever before. And there is no reason why the tendency should be reversed. Good management of this growing plurality would imply not that we assimilate others to the culture of the majority, but that we respect minorities and integrate them into a framework of laws and civic values common to all. That objective is simultaneously important since it has to do with the life of the whole collective and accessible insofar it is as it doesn't affect customs adopted in earliest childhood, constitutive of a basic identity, but concerns rather rules of life that can easily be accepted as varying from one country to another. In other words, the clash of civilizations is definitely not our unavoidable destiny. Thank you. Mm-hmm.